0: Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and here with Richard Hill, Managing Editor and all-round good guy. Howdy, Richard. Look, thank God I'm a good guy. <laughs> uh, so, so, No,
0: it's really good. We're, we're, we're all, still, all still here. Uh, it's fabulous for all those people who thought I was going to travel uh, over and do a conference with them. I'm not.
1: Yeah. My <laughs> oh
0: it's it's such a funny world at the moment isn't it? Anyway, I was brave and I I thought I'll I'll book tickets and now I've unbooked them all. But next year, uh hopefully next year will be it'll be great stuff and of course we'll have
1: our book next year so we've got things mm. to talk about. Uh But um, you you're doing a lot of conferences online though, aren't you, Richard? You oh,
0: yeah, it's Everywhere. great. We, yeah, hmm. we were. I was in, in Germany the other week, in Italy, and uh, Mexico next week, and India hmm. a couple of weeks after that. So people are really interested in the science of psychotherapy. It's it's yeah. it's really fabulous.
1: Brilliant. All right. So Richard, today we are going across to talk to uh, Dr. Jennifer Sweeten. Now she's a clinical and forensic psychologist. She's an Amazon number one bestselling author in clinical psychology, an internationally recognised expert on trauma and the neuroscience of mental health. And today we're going to talk about her latest book. It's a Norton book. It's Eight Key Brain Areas of Mental Health and Illness.
0: Yeah, I mean, this title just really grabbed my imagination and uh, beautifully, uh, Norton has allowed us to publish a chapter in the current magazine. So do go in and grab that. They're looking at the, uh, the, the thalamus, they're so some of her summaries
1: but just but she's got a chapter 10 we'll talk about that by golly it's a fabulous book <laughs> wonderful okay let's go across and talk to dr sweeten dr jennifer sweeten thank you so much for joining us here at the science of psychotherapy podcast great to meet you it's
2: great to meet you thank you for having me
1: and richard is here
0: i'm uh, also very excited to to see you because i want to see the person who wrote this amazing book uh, now we've done an article in the in the the science of psychotherapy this month, so hopefully everybody will dive in there and they can see uh, an excerpt of one of the chapters. Mm-hmm. But it's so fascinating the the process behind it, where it's going. Just give us a little breakdown of how did you get to write this book about these amazing areas of the brain and what they all mean to a therapist.
2: Well, you know, I started off my career as a neuroscientist. So that's how I was originally trained at Stanford and absolutely loved the brain and did a lot of basic science. So looking at what brain areas do what. Uh, But I really wanted to go beyond that and get more into the translational side, which is what prompted me to study clinical psychology. So I ended up becoming a clinical psychologist, but with this neuroscience background. And it's a real passion of mine to merge the two. A lot of times what we find is that we're doing these techniques. We know they're evidence-based. We know that they work for a lot of people, but we may not really understand why. And then meanwhile, in the neuroscience literature, we learn all this cool stuff about these brain areas and what they do. Um, But there is actually some science that can bridge the two. So kind of bridging that science with practice. And that's something I've been presenting on for some number of years and really wanted to write a book on the topic.
1: And like every good translational neuroscientist, you, you, you speak and you write at a level that we can all understand, and so readers of the science of psychotherapy will have already had a bit of a taste of that. Now, what we really wanted to dive into today was your chapter 10 of this book, uh, where you really get practical about highlighting, again, these brain parts and how they're connected with certain psychopathologies. And then, what sort of interventions uh, are generally, you know, best, most salient for these different brain regions? So, let's go for a little bit of a, a little bit of a walk through uh, some of these brain regions and and some of the common psychopathologies attached to them.
2: Sure, sure. Well, uh, the, the nine that I chose, it was actually a work in progress. Uh, I will be honest; I did not sit down and say, you know, these are the nine. I think I started maybe with uh 14 to 16 different areas but what i quickly found is that there's less research in some areas than there are in other areas and so when there is just a paucity of research I couldn't get enough information Then I ended up dropping areas. And of course, it's it's somewhat arbitrary in the brain. uh, What delineates these areas? You know, what's one area versus another area and how you draw that distinction or how we define different areas can vary. So I tried my best to be as clear as possible. So I tried to choose those areas that I thought were truly involved in mental health and illness, but ones where I also knew that there was going to be enough information out there, enough science to be useful. For people, yeah. So,
0: so not really trying to write a definitive textbook on the the whole framework, but just to give a particular uh, set of qualities uh, b- b- of of things going. But I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I, you know, there are areas of the brain that I'm really interested in, and I reckon I could write a half a page on 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 some of them because of what we really know. So, really appreciate that. But having uh, you saying that of the, the references and the ability to, to reference it, that is one of the areas that is so impressive and helpful in my mind, is that you list the references and it's extensive. It's extensive. Did they, first of all, did you go crazy? And uh,
2: yes. um,
0: <laughs> but this idea to to reference each section of these brains. So, so just have a again, if you could continue with those brain regions and this referencing process.
2: Yes. Um so I did go crazy. Um, I think a few different times. Um I did quit the book once and then came <laughs> back. <laughs> so um it took maybe uh, what was it, about About two years or so. Um, what I really tried to do, though, is go area by area, starting off with the areas that I was most confident about, where I knew there was a lot of research. Uh, Google Scholar is my friend. Um, you can find just about anything you need there. And really just trying to focus on good sources, of course, peer-reviewed journals, um journals or articles coming from good neuroscience labs that have a really good reputation and really diving in and trying to glean from it the most important points. Of course, the difficult thing about this research and analyzing it is that um, it's not in plain English. It's in its own language. And um, of course, anyone who's publishing any article has a story to tell. You know, there's always interpretations of the findings where you know maybe your interpretation would be a little bit different. So It was kind of difficult to sift through and read these, but really did my best to find high-quality research that really uh, got to the point of what I was trying to to make in each chapter.
1: You've got these wonderful graphs, these lists for people that uh, will go and get the book. And in Table 10.1, you've got the brain regions that correspond to mental health conditions. And at the top of the list, you've got the thalamus. Right. So give us a little bit of a pricey on the thalamus and what conditions they're generally associated with.
2: Yeah, you know, the thalamus is a really interesting area. It's an area that I I love to teach on because it's really one of the first areas of the brain that receives sensory information. So from the body or from your senses. And its main job in a nutshell is to share that sensory information with the rest of the brain. So for instance, if you are looking at something, So those signals are coming into your eyes, into the ocular motor nerve, directly into the thalamus. And then it's the thalamus's job to reroute that information to other areas of the brain so that the whole brain can process what you're looking at. And it's pretty interesting the way it works because the thalamus, what it does is it routes information down and it routes information up. Now, the thalamus is a subcortical low area of the brain. So it's kind of by the amygdala and some of those other subcortical structures. And so I I like to think of it like it's friends or it's buddies are all kind of hanging out in these lower brain areas. And the thalamus, when it gets the sensory information, it sends it to those other low areas of the brain, specifically the amygdala, which is another, um, another area that's described in the book. But it also sends the signals up to the top areas of the brain, That are more involved in executive functioning and cognition. And so what that does is it allows the brain to analyze or process information, both with some of the more survival-based structures like the amygdala, but also then top areas of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, more your executive functioning center. Then actually what ends up happening uh, that a lot of people don't realize is that the signals eventually converge. So the signal that goes to the top of the brain actually it loops back down it's going to go to the hippocampus and ideally the way the survival areas of the brain interpret something in the way you caught you know consciously rationally interpret something ideally those two things will line up
0: uh, and this is this is of course when when the problems occurred what i found very interesting and we we talked about it in in the book that if you get some, and you can get some damage to the thalamus, uh, you can get minor strokes. Uh, there are a number of reasons why that occurs. That interferes with this ability for information to be distributed around the brain, sometimes called you know, the thalamus the distribution area. And it can present as behavioral problems that you're perhaps as a therapist massively trying to do. And you you mention in your book, I make it clear that the, the depressive disorders, the OCD type of disorders um, motivation i know is a is another one of the things that can be affected there and so you're there trying to adjust their their thinking patterns and their 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 belief patterns but it's actually not it's much deeper
2: right which doesn't mean it can't be altered but the thalamus is one of those areas that is a little bit more tricky and in terms of altering it right we actually know less about changing the thalamus as we do something like the prefrontal cortex but yeah you're you're absolutely right and we know there's certain Changes the otherwise associated uh, with the thalamus in something like um, for instance anxiety. So I mentioned those two paths from the thalamus where the thalamus will reroute sensory information up and down in the brain. Well, with anxiety, what we know happens is the information that's routed downward to that threat detection center, the amygdala, it actually speeds up. It gets faster. So the highway that the information travels down from the thalamus to the amygdala, it gets faster. And then the signal that goes up to the top parts of the brain, your rational thinking areas of the brain, that actually gets slower with anxiety. So sometimes it's changes to the structure itself, but sometimes it's also more changes in how uh, one structure is communicating with another structure. Very fascinating.
0: Wow, and that, that just gives me as a therapist... Not necessarily a different approach to what I'm doing, but it gives me a broader understanding of what I'm dealing with. And it it just deepens my um, deepens my sense of, oh, okay, so I've got speeding up here and fastening up. That's so cool, and that's all beautifully described uh, as you go through in the book, so we, we, uh, I'm not going to try and second-guess it here, but, the, and that, those other area, but you care of those other areas, that, that mid-area, the thalamus, you talk about the amygdala. you've already mentioned that, the hippocampus and the insula too become very yes, important. Very now, these important. all sort of act in together. What's the process with all those, those subcortical or sort of lower regions that you're talking about?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I described them in isolation and it was a difficult decision in the book, actually, originally, in my original proposal, I wanted to spend more chapters also, not just on what these areas are doing, but how they're interacting with these other areas. But it got way too complex too quickly in the book, as it is. is pretty extensive. So it would have been a little much. But um, it is important, I think, to first and foremost know what these structures individually are doing. And then it's a little easier to understand how they're interacting. But yes, they definitely interact. So for instance, um, the thalamus sending the information to the amygdala. And the thalamus also sending that same sensory information to the prefrontal cortex The relationships between these structures are important because the way the thalamus is situated in the brain, it's really close to the amygdala. And what that means is that the amygdala always receives sensory signals before the prefrontal cortex does. So that relationship Mm. is really important. So what it means is anytime you're analyzing something, processing something consciously, it's within your awareness, the amygdala is already done. It's already analyzed. it, And this can be really difficult for people to understand why maybe they're feeling triggered or why they have these knee-jerk reactions that then when they can think rationally, they might regret it or they might think they're going crazy. But really, this is a function of how these brain structures are interacting.
1: Yeah, and this is a great example of why it is important to understand how these brain regions interact from a clinical perspective um, because if we are not understanding why from a prefrontal perspective someone isn't able to change behavior, but we are understanding there is something pre the prefrontal cortex that's going on, um, then we can uh, look at it with a bit more understanding and change our, our therapy process.
2: Absolutely. Yes. It's not just the thalamus. It's not just the amygdala. And even that piece where I talked about how sensory information goes from the thalamus to the amygdala and the amygdala gets it long before the prefrontal cortex gets it. Well, the other thing that's hidden within this process is the hippocampus. The amygdala itself doesn't usually know whether or not something is dangerous. The amygdala itself doesn't know a whole lot. It might know that maybe it's a you know a snake that's dangerous or something. It may or may not know that. But what we know is the amygdala doesn't know if most things are dangerous. And how do you know that? Well, that's where the hippocampus gets involved. Mm-hmm. So when you have that knee-jerk reaction and you feel triggered, it's not just the amygdala, it's the hippocampus. Okay, this is based a lot of times on past experience, long-term memory storage. So if you're wanting to shift this, if you want to not get triggered anymore, okay, you probably need to target the amygdala, but you actually have a lot of work to do with the hippocampus and memory reconsolidation. So yes, these areas interact with one another. Yeah, and yeah, really- it,
1: it, while we're on the hippocampus, maybe you can touch a little bit on um, some of the, um, the things that can go wrong with the hippocampus, especially in, in terms of stress.
2: So it's actually fairly straightforward what's going on in the hippocampus when you're under stress. So if you're encountering maybe a a traumatic event or some sort of toxic stress, what happens in that moment, uh, and this is partially because of amygdala activation, but you get activation of something called the HPA axis. This is your stress pathway, right? Hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis activates. And when that happens, that sends your body into the stress response known as the sympathetic nervous system activation, right? The stress response. 1400 biochemical and psychophysiological changes occur when this happens. One of those changes is the release of cortisol, which we know is the stress hormone or a stress hormone. And cortisol uh floods the body and the brain in those moments and it just so happens that the hippocampus is covered in cortisol receptors, which means it's like a magnet to the cortisol. So the cortisol all wants to flood into the hippocampus, which would be great if it was you know, a positive influence if it had some sort of good effect, but it turns out that it's toxic to the hippocampus and it actually prevents it from fully activating. And if it stays there too long or there's too much cortisol, it can actually lead to atrophy of this area. So what that translates into is a hippocampus that is not fully activated at the time of memory encoding is a hippocampus that's not going to encode memories in the same way. And this is how we get trauma memories. Uh, that a lot of times are more fragmented, where people will remember bits and pieces. Now, there's multiple reasons for that, but hippocampal saturation with cortisol is one reason. So you get fragmented memories. You also get memories that are overgeneralized. So if you get these fragmented memories that lack context, then what you get is generalization. So uh, if, for instance, your trauma involved uh, and i'm thinking about what is it the old white rabbit study from the 1920s i think the little albert study where they conditioned this 9 month old child to be really scared of the white bunnies because they would give him the bunny and then they'd make the loud sound of uh, you know over his head make him cry well when it's a traumatic memory like that and we'll ignore his age for now but when it's something like that that gets paired what we know is if cortisol is saturated in the hippocampus, then it doesn't encode the memory as being, oh, when I go into this lab and there's the guy in the white lab coat and he shows me the white bunny, he's going to make a sound and it's going to be scary. That is a comprehensive memory with context. But when cortisol is entered the hippocampus, usually instead what happens is these fragments where it might be white lab coat, the guy's shoe white bunny. And so it's taken out of the context where the bunny was, which means now that little Albert is afraid of all white bunnies in all contexts. Turns out he's afraid of Santa Claus beers. Turns out he's afraid of white cotton balls. So you get where I'm going with it. This is generalization of fear. And this is why in something like PTSD, we see people getting jumpy and really afraid of things that have nothing to do really with the original trauma, but they probably have some element in common that the hippocampus encoded. And now the hippocampus is giving that danger signal to the amygdala, which now is activating anytime you see a cotton ball. So this is where things get problematic.
0: Yeah, I I was saying something to a client the other day when uh, uh, in relational issues, relationship issues, and I just sort of distilled all that beautiful stuff that you've just uh, said there down to a very simple statement. And I said, this is what my wife and I do. We'll just be starting to amp up and ratchet up the, the disturbance and the argument or whatever it is. And more often than not, we, we'll catch each other by just saying, this isn't worth the cortisol. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because we because we know all those damages that it does. And, and it's not something that just passes by. And this knowledge and understanding of how cortisol affects the system, and this is not even yet going into what cortisol does to cellular behavior and aging, and and telomere lengths, and so on and so forth, which um, which is uh, more stuff that people can investigate when they go down. So, uh, so yeah, this is a fabulous sort of understanding uh, that you're giving people. And and what is just this very easy to access framework, as as we hear in the way you're describing, so we we go on though, don't we, Matt? Where where are you hmm. wanting to take it now? I can't well, well,
1: Yeah, I'm wondering about some areas that people may not be so familiar with, and you you mentioned the nucleus accumbens. Um, and I thought that might be a good topic to to have a bit of a chat about as well. well. It's one of my favorites, yeah.
2: Yeah, nucleus accumbens, super interesting area of the brain. So sometimes this is referred to as a reward center, although the brain doesn't have a reward center. Of course, it has a reward circuit with a lot of areas that are involved. But sometimes I'll call the nucleus accumbens the, the reward center because if you look at the reward circuit, there's actually like five different sub-circuits within this circuit. Uh, the one thing that all of it has in common is the nucleus accumbens. So sometimes I say the nucleus accumbens is kind of like if you're flying through uh, certain really popular airports like in the US, like LAX or O'Hare, where everywhere passes through it if you see the map. So really, really critical area involved in reinforcement. Um, So it's involved in pleasure. It's um, involved in anything that feels reinforcing. Sometimes I don't emphasize the pleasure piece because sometimes uh, what we become addicted to is not pleasurable, believe it or not, but it's still reinforcing. So I think of it as an area of reinforcement. And the way we're just designed as human beings is to have this nucleus accumbens that activates at low to moderate levels, just a little bit of a blip, in response to a million different things all day, every day. So when you wake up, if you maybe have a little bit of coffee, you get a little bit of nucleus accumbens activation. What happens when you get nucleus accumbens activation is you get dopamine that's actually coming from the ventral tegmental area, which is not discussed in the book, but you get a little dopamine hit when you drink your coffee. Maybe you're spending time with a loved one. You get some dopamine, a little bit of nucleus accumbens activation. You pet the cat. You get some nucleus accumbens activation. And it's that nucleus accumbens activation that essentially keeps you going, keeps you motivated because you're getting these little mini reinforcements all through the day, every day. So where it can get disrupted is that we know in depression, it stops really responding. And the absence of that dopamine is oftentimes what we call anhedonia. So we know with depression, all of a sudden, everything feels like blah, right? Everything kind of feels like cardboard. Nothing really feels like it gets you going. And this is why people don't want to do anything. If nothing's reinforcing, you're going to stop doing stuff. So the problem a lot of times for for folks is going to be in that area of the brain, of course, other areas also. And on the flip side with addiction, The problem is that what happens is sometimes through different ways, maybe drugs or alcohol, we will flood the nucleus accumbens with too much dopamine to where essentially what the nucleus accumbens comes to say is, I like the the meth or I like the heroin. I'm getting more dopamine from the meth than I am petting the cat. So forget the cat. We're just going to hold out for the meth essentially. And so then what happens is your brain essentially wires itself to the thing or the substance that you become addicted to. Of course, the tricky thing over time is that you're going to get less dopamine, less nucleus accumbens whenever you engage in the thing that that you're addicted to. And so that's where, of course, risk of overdose happens and things like that. But with the nucleus accumbens, we really want to keep that area responsive, but we don't want to flood it With uh, drugs and alcohol, with, with the dopamine.
0: Yeah, and yeah. I mean, this this is my work is is in curiosity, and uh, I do a lot of aspect of how to, how do we naturally balance our chemical processes. As actually, uh, uh, and actually, yeah, we've talked a lot about that. And the, the nucleus accumbens is this wonderful interplay area in between that dopamine system to the prefrontal cortex, dopamine system, to the limbic area, uh, and the uh, the the dopaminergic system is so diverse it Mm. it it doesn't respond well to excesses or to minimizing or to limits just as you say it's uh, very nicely put thank you for that
1: now um addiction is a is fairly obvious um thing to talk about when we're talking about dopaminergic systems you also mentioned personality disorders and um how does that how does personality play in with the nucleus accumbens Mm.
2: Okay. Okay. So I don't know fully is the short answer. The longer answer is it's, um, it can be about how much that area is activating, but that then we're actually more getting into the question of how is it interacting with other structures? This is where looking at it in context becomes more important. So for instance, um, We know that if you look at something like borderline personality disorder, there's been some pretty cool research showing that the nucleus accumbens is more tightly wired to the amygdala. Mm -hmm. If you think about that, like, okay, what does that look like behaviorally or what, what would that experience be like where you have this amygdala, this threat detection center, or the smoke detector, as Bessel van der Kolk would call it. And then you have the nucleus accumbens, this reward center or this reinforcement center, and they're too tightly wired. So they're feeding off of each other and sort of activating each other. Mm What it means is that amygdala activation can start to feel almost addictive. I I, I use that word carefully, reinforcing. Let's use that. So amygdala activation becomes reinforcing. So you might get these individuals in these tumultuous relationships that are very up and down. And it's not that they're liking it. I think that's important to realize. It's not that they're enjoying this. They're not enjoying this. Nonetheless, they feel perpetually drawn into it because there's going to actually be some dopamine associated mm. with those tumultuous relationships it's a
1: reactive state isn't it they are reacting um, more than anything
2: yes yes and they and they won't even understand it themselves they'll say i don't know why I keep doing this or I don't know why yeah. I keep finding these people but yet they do yeah. and, I, and I, mean, I think yeah there's a lot of brain stuff going on that explains it
0: yeah, this and also this thing of of automatic behaviours or things occurring in that half second or so before things like the prefrontal cortex, the regulating aspects of the brain, come into play, uh, and that's reactive as different from you know that responsive, which is the other side, and and we talk about. So there, I've just quickly segued up from the subcortical regions into the cortical region. That was convenient, but yeah. So so now, but yeah, that that is. The think so we've got this stuff going on uh, down there that you've described in those subcortical regions but we still have all this activity in the more in the regulatory areas of the of the cortical region and you've talked about uh talked about the principally in that prefrontal cortex the ventromedial and the dorsolateral but also the anterior cingulate which is kind of a bit of a uh, a bit of a sort of a, a a Johnny come both worlds. What are your thoughts of how you've brought that in to describe some of those conditions?
2: Yeah, I, I think um, the prefrontal cortex is always of course really important to to look at and to know a little little bit about it's hard to know where to um, distinguish between different components. Of course, the prefrontal cortex is a very large area with a ton of sub areas like I can tell you back in. Graduate school, our favorite area to look at was the orbitofrontal cortex, the OFC. I mean, there's all these little areas, but the the ventromedial area, which is a little more center, uh, kind of midline, and then the dorsolateral areas on each side, more of that outer side of your head. Those are the two areas that I chose to focus on because they, they seem to do fundamentally different things, although you could argue that the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is pretty different than the right one too. Um, but it, these are the executive functioning centers. They're the areas of the brain that allow you to know who you are, self-referential thoughts, personality. Uh, It's your connection also to other people. It's um, also where the ability to focus or concentrate is, especially more left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And those areas are a little bit different then, but but really um, connect nicely, I think, to the cingulate. I know I specifically talked about the anterior cingulate, which is pretty much like right there, pretty much up against the prefrontal cortex. So these are neighboring areas. And depending on how you define these areas, there there can be actually some overlap there. Uh, But I think of the anterior cingulate as being more about self-regulation, although ventromedial prefrontal cortex has some of that too. But anterior cingulate mostly involved in stuff like emotion regulation, thought regulation, regulation, behavior regulation. Yeah. Um, and you, you need both. You, you were talking about activations in these areas. We want there to be activation in these areas for the most part. Every now and then, and something like um, OCD, there will be an issue where there's overactivation in a certain area. And with OCD, I think it's actually the, the, the dorsal anterior cingulate. It's like the error detection center that tells you you need to wash your hands again, or you've made some sort of mistake. And so it gets too activated. So you're always getting the error message, essentially. So every now and then, little pieces of these areas that are overactivated can be associated with disorders. But in large part, with a lot of these disorders, what we see is pretty pervasive underactivation of these cortical areas where we want to strengthen these areas with things like cognitive therapies.
1: Yeah, and uh, anterior cingulate cortex, of course, um, like you were saying before, is just part of the the or the orchestra of, of parts that are connected with addiction, anxiety, all the rest of it. So once again, very hard to tease it all into very discrete units, but each each part vitally important in the play out of these psychopathologies. But,
0: but just thinking of a quick nice metaphor there it, it, it's useful to know about the orchestra certainly oh. you need to you need to understand the the whole context of the thing but it's really good not to be confusing uh the trumpets for the violins true yeah. uh that so that's exactly as you're saying matt you know we 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 need to know the instruments going on then we can really get it more effectively as to the direction in which we can apply ourselves mm. and that's the other thing that you do in your third mm-hmm. Beautiful graph, uh, sort of a table. There mm. is you then actually look at the sorts of treatments that can be effectively used in relation to these uh, uh, disorders and the brain regions that are that are being affected. And uh, that again, I mean, we appreciate that. You, obviously, as soon as it's in a table, it's it becomes you know oversimplified. But that process there, how did you uh, find that working?
2: Uh, th- this is a kind of a nightmare i'll be honest because you know that in, in neuroscience land they're not they're not trying to put things in a chart right these are experts within certain subdomains who a lot of times become pretty obsessed with certain subregions of the brain and so there is no real continuity in terms of hey are is this study looking at breathing exercises okay well this other study is looking at this comprehensive therapy that includes a breathing exercise but a body scan and like 10 other things so it's really hard to disentangle okay so what exactly is helped by these techniques there's not a whole lot of dismantling neuroscientific studies so that's why in the table what i did is i broke it down uh, in terms of treatment approaches into levels where basically level one approaches are more of like the comprehensive therapies. So some studies just looked at like EMDR or just SSRIs. And so that's what's mentioned. Uh, Level two then is um, more like specific techniques within specific uh, or like... um, Pieces of therapies. Uh, so, EMDR could actually be listed as level two, depending on how they did it. So, maybe it wasn't the full EMDR protocol. Maybe it was, uh, you know, phases three through six of EMDR or something. So, it's kind of like smaller chunks. So, not the entire therapies, but pieces of therapies. Then, level three is individual techniques. So, that would be like um, progressive muscle relaxation exercise. So some studies are looking at little individual techniques and some are looking at entire therapies. So I'm trying to be comprehensive and give a nod to all of it, if that makes sense.
1: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can just step through one of the examples you've got there. So at the top of this particular table, um, you've got the thalamus and you've got uh, three levels there of therapeutic approaches. Are you
2: able to just step us through some of that? Yes. So if you're, yep, you're on page 151, looking at table 10.3. So we have it broken down into these columns. So leftmost column is the brain region in question. The middle one is the commonly associated mental health conditions. Uh, And keep in mind that I'm telling you the truth here with this stuff, but I'm not telling you the whole truth. We know there's so much more information out there. This is just the current state of things as we know it. And then in the right most column are the therapeutic approaches very vaguely or broadly. So with the thalamus, we know that some conditions that are associated with thalamic, you could say dysfunction or dysregulation would be PTSD, anxiety disorders, and addiction-related disorders. So keeping it kind of broad. Uh, And in terms of then the therapeutic approaches, under level one, very, very broad, but I'm putting CBT-based interventions. Because in the research, you're going to see all sorts of different um, names of therapies, you know, like, okay, what's that? What's that? What's that? And you got to go into the protocol and you see, okay, this is just essentially CBT. So I'm trying to kind of cover it all. So CBT-based interventions, also exposure-based interventions, uh, which of course we know tend to be pretty effective for PTSD and anxiety disorders, and SSRI. So I am including uh, medications in there when I I was finding, you know, it uh, quite a bit in the research. Level two is EMDR. So we're thinking EMDR skills. This means, okay, maybe it's not like the entire original eight-phase model, but it's parts of EMDR. And then for thalamic dysregulation for level three, deep breathing and progressive uh, progressive muscle relaxation are the two individual techniques that we know about. So this does not mean that other techniques are not helpful to the thalamus in some way. It probably just means we have no idea, and of course, studies that don't have, um, you know, positive results usually are not published. So if I'm not including it, it's not that there's been research that I've seen that's really against it. It's that we probably just don't know.
0: All right, uh, but but I love. It. I mean, it's mm. it, it's giving us a um, a framework. It's giving a place to start uh, to to investigate them. I and I, I don't, for one second, think that you're trying to be definitive, but it's. No. But you can see it. You've talked about the thalamus. It 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 has top-down work. It has bottom, uh, bottom-up bottom distribution. So you've got a CBT, which is doing a top-down thing. Fantastic exposure, which is more of a bottom-up. SSRIs, which is a more of a internal redistribution. EMDR, which comes down to a bit of both. Uh, deep breathing and progressive muscle stuff, so just using so that whole body-up uh, sensorial thing. When you can see, I, it just oh, yeah, gee, that makes so much sense. And it fits in with all the stuff you've done way back
1: in Chapter 2, which is
0: just beautiful, beautifully yeah.
2: done.
1: Yeah, wonderful. I mean, as a clinician, you know, I'd be looking at, you know, what what sort of top-down, what, what cognitive processes am I using, what sort of more somatic bottom-up, Things am I using? I go to this chart. Oh, okay. So I'm actually, um you know, touching on the thalamus with, you know, these sort of anxiety disorders with either these top down or bottom up processes. And I've got a kind of a general, I know, broad stroke kind of picture of uh, at what level of uh, efficacy, I guess, um these applications are having on my client. So it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Look at us both thinking the same way. <laughs> Good partners. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Beautiful brilliant. so, um, Jenny, one of the things that uh, many clinicians will be thinking is, you know, why do I have to need what do I need to know about these brain regions? You know I've got my techniques, and uh, you know they're they' successful, and uh, this seems like a whole lot of complication I don't need. what uh, What's your message to to those clinicians?
2: I think one message would be that it doesn't have to be that complicated because it's all in these charts. So even if you don't want to read the entire book, you can kind of cut to the chase and you can go to that last chapter. But I think it is it is actually important that we understand a little bit about mechanisms. What I mean is what makes something effective. So what exactly is going to make a cognitive restructuring tasks uh, effective for someone? And why? And when? Because yes, we have these tools. But if we don't know what we're trying to fix, we, we don't know what we're really aiming for then yes, it might be evidence-based, but really for what? And what we're doing is we're throwing things and we're hoping that something sticks. Uh, Inevitably, it's going to be the case that you're going to do something with someone that does not work for them. Not everything works for everyone all the time. And the more we can understand how symptoms are linked to these brain areas and what's going on, and then what the tools and techniques are that help heal those areas or shift them in the direction of health, then what we're doing is we're taking a more individualized and and truly evidence-informed approach in our therapy so that we're not just applying the same tool over and over and over again and just kind of hoping that it works. But we can take steps to learn just a little bit about the brain where we can maximize our efficacy with clients.
0: Yeah, It's very difficult, I find, sometimes when I'm teaching to say that, this knowledge gives me a feel for my client. Uh, so sometimes I'm sitting there. And I've got someone with anxiety, and it just feels amygdala. Yeah, but then there's other ones. It just kind of feels basal ganglia, or and then sometimes it just feels like self-imposed. So therefore, it's uh, it's more much more of a cognitive thing, and and to trying to get someone to um, to understand the felt senses is. Um, biological as well as it is in some of these emotive states and empathetic states that we can be biologically empathetic I don't know whether that's a word but uh, what do you think we're we're probably running towards the end Matt I think uh, we might need to wrap up now we could just go on forever but we've given a a teaser and everywhere is there anything we've missed uh, Jenny or anything that you just as a roundup that you'd like to leave uh, as a message for people
2: Yes. Well, I, I don't think you've missed anything, but I think what I would leave uh, listeners with would be if you don't want to dive into all nine areas of the brain, but you want to learn some things that are going to really help you help the the largest number of clients, I'd say really focus on the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. If you're going to just choose two areas, choose those two. And if you're going to go beyond that, you probably should go to more like the hippocampus and insula. But you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed or intimidated by it, start off with a classic low area of the brain, like the amygdala, and then a top area like the prefrontal cortex. And actually, if you can just learn a little bit about those two areas, you're going to be pretty ahead of a lot of people.
1: That sounds like great advice. Dr. Jennifer Sweeten, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's been great chatting.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, wonderful to talk to you, Jenny.
0: Well, I was not disappointed in any way, (laughs) shape or form. In fact, I I actually just have to pull myself back. She was great. Absolutely. God, smart. I mean, just grasping and pulling those things, and I think the book does that. Yeah. I mean, it's not just sort of like this detailed factual book. It's a, it's a, it's a book that fills you in and takes you somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really loved it. Really
1: loved it. Yeah, and it, you know, it, it takes a uh, quite an intellect to take a lot of the hard science, the the, the papers, and turn them into normal English. Mm, um, that we can mm. all understand, and then make all the connections to say clinically, this is why this is important, and this is why this technique actually, you know, modulates something with this brain area. So it's 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 quite a work. Yeah, she's done great. And and what are we doing? What's, what's happening with us at the moment, Matt? What's happening with us? Well, we're, we're still continuing on with the science of psychotherapy.net. Uh, now that's where you can get our archive of uh, magazine articles and courses and other things that we've been doing since 2013. So we'd love for you to be the part of the tribe jump in and become a subscriber there. We also have our own title going to be released in the new year. Uh, Richard, do you want to give a bit of a plug for ourselves?
0: plug for ourselves. So coming up, uh, depending where you are, end of February, early March, Mm -hmm. The Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy. And we go through a whole bunch of areas of, uh, and we'll be doing podcasts on these to give you some indication and uh, uh, insight into what we've been talking about. But what's going on in the brain? What's going on in the body? What's going on in our mind? What's going on in practitioners' minds? Because we talked to some of the experts as well. Uh, We're really looking forward. It's been a couple of years, (laughs) uh, but it's finally coming out. So we're looking forward to that. You can jump in now on Amazon uh, everywhere, get a pre-order. Uh, which is really good, fabulously, reasonably priced, 30, 30 US dollars, which is really, we're so
1: pleased with that.
0: Yeah. Uh, is, that enough of a, is that enough of a plug? <laughs> I'm excited about my own book. <laughs> that's
1: that's that's a good plug. I, I'm excited as well. And um, for those of you who want to go deeper, yeah, the scienceofpsychotherapy.net is what we're presenting in the book, but with way more detail and, and depth that we can do online uh, with the, the many, many uh, experts that we've, managed to interview and have had articles from over all of these years. Anyway, that's enough from us. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.